Isaiah 56 this morning. You can find that on page 616 if you're using the Pew Bible. Isaiah 56. Uh, So far, we've spent three weeks in a marriage series, and I'm concluding that marriage series today with a message on singleness. Just because the, uh, the message will be tailored for our singles doesn't mean the rest of you should check out. Okay, the, We are one body in Christ, and in order to love one another well, there are things we need to know about each other, whatever place the Lord has us. Just as the marriage sermons had implications for singles, you'll see that the Bible's vision for singleness has implications for married folks. Uh, For example, we need a biblical perspective on singleness to keep from saying really dumb things that uh, don't reflect the truth of the gospel and that make uh, single people feel inferior. We need a biblical perspective on singleness to know how to pray for and care for and instruct uh, single people as we're making disciples. We need to hear their struggles so we can uh, show compassion and give encouragement through the challenges they face. And one more thing, not only did we all come into this world single, but many of us will leave this world single. Marriage is not forever. And some of us will lose our spouse before we go to be with the Lord. And if that happens to be you one day, I hope that this message prepares you right now to spend those days living for the glory of Christ. So we'll be looking at several passages today, starting with Isaiah 56. And I want to look at five truths about singleness on which we can keep building as a church. So truth number one. Singleness is affirmed by the Scripture's storyline. Singleness is affirmed by the Scripture's storyline. That may not sound like a big assertion, but when you compare it with the teachings of other monotheistic religions, uh, it is quite striking. Uh, For instance, Judaism does not look favorably upon singleness, especially for men, since God has commanded us to be fruitful and multiply. Islam goes further and condemns the single life. Uh, Their prophet Muhammad is recorded saying, the most low in status among your dead are the singles. Mormonism states that spiritual maturity and exaltation in the highest degree of the celestial kingdom require marriage. Require it. But the message of Christianity is far different, or at least it should be. And I want to show you one of the key reasons why, namely the gospel of Jesus Christ, the greatest blessings in life don't come through marriage and physical offspring, but through Jesus Christ, the one offspring, and our all-satisfying union with him. Let's read Isaiah 56. Verses 3 to 5 together. It says, Let not the foreigner who has joined himself to the Lord say, 
The Lord will surely separate me from his people. And let not the eunuch say, Behold, I am a dry tree. For thus says the Lord to the eunuchs who keep my Sabbaths, who choose the things that please me and hold fast my covenant, I will give in my house and within my walls a monument and a name better than sons and daughters. I will give them an everlasting name that shall not be cut off. Now, in order to grasp the glory of this passage and uh, the promises that it holds out for singles and, and, and really all of us, uh, we have to see a much bigger context. Uh, throughout Israel's history, marriage and physical offspring were, were crucial uh, to, to uh, they were crucial aspects to the covenants. Marriage and offspring are emphasized since Genesis 2. Having physical offspring also becomes a sinner's stage in God's promise to Abraham and Isaac and, and Jacob. And you even, as you're reading the Bible, you, you feel this great tension uh, in the storyline whenever you find a wife like Sarah who is, who is barren. And your heart breaks because you know God's blessings and, and His promises, they're all tied to, to Israel having the physical offspring. The emphasis on marriage and having physical offspring then get reinforced under the, the Mosaic Covenant. To the degree that, that marrying and, and having children was, was the way to maintain your inheritance in the land and, and the way to perpetuate your name in the land. And that, that's why you get laws concerning uh, leveret marriage, for example, Deuteronomy 25, marrying your brother's wife if he dies in order to perpetuate his name in the land. It was worse than death to lose your name. It was a curse to have your name blotted out, discontinued. You see this in Deuteronomy 29, verse 20. So you can see the implication for a eunuch, like Isaiah is talking about who couldn't have any offspring. I mean, he, he, it's like he lived with a, with a curse. Uh, there were also laws that excluded eunuchs from, from God's assembly in Deuteronomy 23. So, so not only can, can they not perpetuate their name, uh, but, but they were accustomed to being outcasts. No inheritance, no name, no community. Isaiah... Chapter 39, verse 7, says that some folks in Israel, in particular uh, Hezekiah's, some of Hezekiah's offspring, Babylon, was, was going to take them away, and the kings in Babylon were going to force them to become eunuchs in the king's palace. And you, you can imagine uh, the curse that would just weigh upon them as as they serve those men who took away their inheritance and who took away their name and who took away their community by making them eunuchs. The exile was for their sin, their own sin, of course. Israel, Israel broke the covenant without repentance, and so they, they had to endure the curses of that covenant. And it's, it's within this context that God speaks this blessing to the eunuch. 
The one, the one who is not married and the one who has no, can't have any children. He, he says, to the eunuchs who keep my Sabbaths, who choose the things that please me and hold fast my covenant, I will give in my house and within my walls a monument and a name better than sons and daughters. I will give them an everlasting name that shall not be cut off. So, so they get God as their inheritance. They get community, it says, within his walls. And they get a name that's better than sons and daughters and wouldn't ever be cut off. Which, and if you go back to Isaiah 55 verse 13, you see that it's God that he's going to make a name for himself. And his name is never going to be cut off. And this is attached to the glorious renewal of the, of the earth um, and so this was another way of saying that God would share his state in glory with the, these eunuchs. Moreover, he says, uh, he says, let not the eunuch say, behold, I am a dry tree. In other words, even the eunuch would bear fruit, meaning he would have offspring. Wait a second. How can a eunuch have offspring? That's impossible. It's just as impossible as the barren woman who has offspring in Isaiah 54, just a couple chapters before this one. Isaiah 54, verse 1, For the children of the desolate one will be more than the children of the married woman. What? I mean, how can a eunuch bear offspring? How can a barren woman bear offspring? How can this be possible? How is it that those who were once cut off from the Lord's assembly would now be welcomed within his household? How is it that those who once could have no name, would now be given an everlasting name? How is it that those who once could have no children would now be given so many children, even more children than, the, than those who were married? Uh, Isaiah 54 verse 3 says, Enough children to possess the nations. How is this possible? Well, God makes it happen through his suffering servant. We enter here is where we enter the gospel of Jesus Christ. Isaiah 53 tells us of the suffering servant. And we know that the suffering servant is Jesus Christ. And I want to draw your attention to three significant things about this, this servant. Okay, First, he died for our sins. Isaiah 53 verse 5 says... But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. And upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds we are healed. So he dies a sacrifice in our place. He bears the punishment that we deserved. Secondly, notice that he was cut off. Isaiah 53 verse 8. By oppression and judgment he was taken away, and as for his generation, who, has, who considered it? For he was cut off 
out of the land of the living. So think, just like the eunuch was cut off, just like the foreigner was cut off, just like all of us Gentiles were cut off, he was cut off out of the land of the living, stricken for the transgression of my people. So he's, he was cut off that all of us might enter in to fellowship with God. But thirdly, and get this, the result of becoming that substitute and the result of getting cut off so that others might enter in was to produce many offspring. Look at Isaiah 53 verse 10. Isaiah 53, verse 10. Yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. He has put him to grief. When his soul makes an offering for guilt, he shall see his offspring. Well, that's strange. The suffering servant doesn't have any offspring, physically speaking. And we know what the New Testament says about Jesus. He doesn't have any physical offspring. He wasn't married. He doesn't have any children. He, but it says here, he will see his offspring. How can he see his offspring if he's not married, he doesn't have any children? The point is that his death creates spiritual offspring. He sees his offspring in that God raises Jesus from the dead to secure all the offspring for whom he died as they trust in his atoning sacrifice. God's people wouldn't be marked anymore by a physical connection to Israel. They are marked by a spiritual connection to Christ, the true Israel. Christ is the true offspring of the woman in Genesis 3.15. He is the true offspring of Abraham in Genesis 15. He is the true offspring of Israel. And since that true offspring has come, God's people would no longer expand through marriage and procreation, but through martyrdom and proclamation. That is, proclamation of the atoning work of Jesus to all nations. The eunuchs in Isaiah 56 are one example of Christ's spiritual offspring. Meaning this, regardless of whether you're married or single... In Christ, you get God's name, and you get God's inheritance, and you get God's community. In other words, the Christian's significant and identity is not bound up with being married and having children. It's bound up with being found in Christ, in the suffering servant. That doesn't diminish the blessing of marriage and children, but it does give it a proper context, and it keeps us from elevating it to a place it does not belong. Being somebody isn't attached to marriage and children. Isaiah says it's attached to choosing the things that please God and holding fast to his covenant. In our case, uh, it would be following Jesus and holding fast to Jesus. That's where true significance is, is in Christ. Getting married and having children, they add nothing to all that we already have in Christ. 
Now, all of this comes to fruition in the New Testament. This is just one example. In Acts chapter 8, who is it that Philip witnesses to? An Ethiopian eunuch. He's both a foreigner and a eunuch. And what does he preach to this eunuch? He preaches Jesus from Isaiah 53. The guy is born again. Philip baptizes him. And can you imagine what the eunuch thought once he made it to Isaiah 56? So he's reading the scroll, reads God's promises specifically for him. I mean, what are marriage and children when you have the God of the universe? Comparatively speaking, we're going to talk about some of the challenges of singleness in a minute. But wow, fellowship with God? A name that is better than sons and daughters? The possibility of having numerous spiritual offspring as, as I tell others about Jesus? I mean, it's beautiful. It's transforming. The blessings gained in Christ, no matter if married or single, trump everything else in life. In his book, Redeeming Singleness, Barry Danielek writes, Christian singleness lived in its fullest expression is a powerful testimony to the gospel. It is a testimony to the supreme sufficiency of Christ for all things, testifying that through Christ, life is fully blessed, even without marriage and children. And we married people need to be reminded of that. We are reminded of that as single people devote themselves to the Lord. And I'm thankful that our singles serve in ways that remind us of that. That we don't need marriage and children to be fully blessed in Christ. Something else in the New Testament is that both Jesus and Paul affirm singleness. No human displayed God's image more perfectly than Jesus, and Jesus was a single man. Moreover, Jesus says this in Matthew 19, verse 12, that there are eunuchs who have made themselves eunuchs for the sake of the kingdom of heaven. That doesn't mean they emasculated themselves. It means they've chosen to, not to marry, to devote themselves more fully to the interests of the kingdom. Not everyone can do this, Jesus says. It says, let the one who is able to receive this, receive it. So he's not disparaging singleness. Jesus praises singleness when people use it for the sake of the kingdom. So Jesus is affirming that choosing not to marry for the sake of the kingdom purposes is okay. It's okay because God's kingdom doesn't spread by making babies. It spreads by making disciples. The most significant family to be part of is not the one that comes through marriage and procreation, but the one that comes by the spiritual rebirth in Christ. Paul also affirms singleness, and then he calls it a gift from God, which leads to truth number two. Singleness is a gift from God. Look with me at 1 Corinthians chapter 7 for this, for this one. 1 Corinthians chapter 7, page 955, if you're using a pew Bible. Paul is answering specific questions about marriage, uh, marriage and singleness, and, and, and 
as you read the cha- chapter 7, you, you find all kinds of single people. Uh, single people never married, single people who don't want to get married, single people who do want to get married, but they're waiting, and single people uh, like widows and widowers, all kinds. And Paul sees their singleness as, 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 as something very positive for the church and her mission. And so he says in verse 7, I wish that all were as I myself am, that is, single, but each has his own gift from God, one of one kind and one of another. So each one has a gift from God, one of one kind, that is singleness, and one of another, that is marriage. And so right there we see it, singleness alongside marriage is a gift from God. And, and let's be careful here. By, by using the word gift, he's not being super spiritual and, and saying that you have some sort of special ability to remain permanently single. He's saying to consider the single state you're currently in as something good from God and to be stewarded well for the edification of the church and the advance of the gospel. That's the kind of gift he has in mind, whether, it's, whether you're married or you're single. That, that's, that's why we have any gift from God. It is to be received from him as a good thing and stewarded well for his glory and the edification of his people. That may be a difficult truth to embrace for many singles, but it, it's one that, that we must work towards embracing. I mean, if, if you don't embrace it, then you're in danger of squandering one of God's gifts to you right now and one of God's gifts to us as a church. Elizabeth Elliot once wrote, If you are single today, the portion assigned to you for today is singleness. It is God's gift. Singleness ought not to be viewed as a problem, nor marriage as a right. God, in his wisdom and love, grants either as a gift. An unmarried person has the gift of singleness, not to be confused with the gift of celibacy. When we speak of the gift of celibacy, we usually refer to one who is bound by vows not to marry. If you are not so bound... What may be your portion tomorrow is not your business today. What may be your portion tomorrow is not your business today. Today's business is trust in the living God who precisely measures out day by day each one's portion. Her words reflect well the Apostle Paul, who will go on to say in verse 17... Only let each person lead the life that the Lord has assigned to him and to which God has called him. In her book, Did I Kiss Marriage Goodbye?, Carolyn McCauley writes a good question. She, in place of the question, why aren't you married yet? We should be asking, What is God doing with and through my singleness? What is God doing with and through my singleness? This attitude of being 
good stewards of whatever gift we have connects to truth number three. Singleness has great benefits for gospel work. Singleness has great benefits for gospel work. The clearest expression of this third truth comes in in chapter 7 of 1 Corinthians again. I want to read in uh, verse 32 to 35. And uh, he's going to use the word worldly in here, okay? And by worldly, he doesn't mean sinful. Uh, If you look at verse 31, his closing line there, For the present form of this world is passing away. So what he's meaning is not worldly in the sense of sinful, but worldly in the sense in it ain't going to last forever, meaning marriage in particular. So, verse 32, he says, I want you to be free from anxieties. The unmarried man is anxious about the things of the Lord, how to please the Lord. But the married man is anxious about worldly things, how to please his wife, and his interests are divided. And the unmarried or betrothed woman is anxious about the things of the Lord, how to be holy in body and spirit. But the married woman is anxious about worldly things, how to please her husband. I say this for your own benefit, not to lay any restraint upon you, But, and this is the key, to promote good order and to secure your undivided devotion to the Lord. Paul is a realist. Marriage and children require lots of attention, time, energy, money, and so forth, all focused on just a very few people. A person who is single can use many of the same resources, but some of their freedom and flexibility enables them to minister to a much larger group of people. Singles certainly share some of the same responsibilities as married people. Personal care and rest, long work days, service to the church, ministry to relatives. Paul's point is simply to take to help them take advantage of the opportunities that singleness affords that marriage often does not. And as he puts it, to promote good order and to secure your undivided devotion to the Lord. So Paul doesn't want them paralyzed by self-pity, but inspired by the Lord's mission. The picture here is one who who sits beside the king ready for his service. Some of the freedoms that come with being single shouldn't mean more freedom to to just waste time and goof off and just do whatever you want, but, but more freedom to serve and do what Christ wants. And in that, you become the ones who are, who have un undivided devotion to the Lord, you become exemplars of that in the church. As all the people are watching your life, we want to imitate that, even as married people. I had a friend in seminary from Botswana, and his name was Jack. Jack was single. He was in his uh, late 30s, early 40s, when we were going through school together. But, but Jack, Jack also wanted to be married. 
And there were two things that Jack always prayed for when we'd get together to pray. That, uh, one, that Jesus would return for his bride. And two, that Jack would wake up to his own bride. Well, the Lord eventually answered uh, the second prayer for Jack. But one thing I remember about Jack is just every waking moment of his life was, was spent wholly devoted to Christ in prayer and study and, and serving others and work and evangelism and loving his church and helping the poor. Jack was not over-invested. Um, he knew how to rest. He called it paying the debt on Saturday morning. But Jack sat at the feet of the king ready to serve, always. And he was an example to me. The culture we live in gives the impression that life really begins only after you get married. Or only after you're in a romantic relationship. There's this assumption that, you know, once you reach our life stage, then you can start living for real. Baloney. That couldn't be farther from the truth. Paul is saying that it doesn't matter what state you're in. Your greatest concern is undivided devotion to the Lord. Because his kingdom isn't passing away. This is what we observe in the New Testament. I mean, Paul has a mission for widows to pray and to show hospitality and to care for the afflicted. In 1 Timothy 5. He has churches for, for Timothy to disciple and, and elders for him to raise up. Paul himself takes advantage of the flexibility afforded him and stewards it well for Christ. And, and you know what's so amazing about Paul's undivided devotion to the Lord? The Lord uses it to give Paul many, many offspring. Listen to the way he talks about them. 1 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 15. For though you have countless guides in Christ, you do not have many fathers. For I became your father in Christ Jesus through the gospel. Galatians 4, 19. My little children, for whom I am again in the anguish of childbirth until Christ is formed in you. Paul wasn't even a... didn't have physical children, but he knew the anguish of raising little children. 1 Thessalonians 2, 7. But we were gentle among you, like a nursing mother taking care of her own children. 1 Thessalonians 2, 11 and 12. Like a father, we exhorted you, walk in a manner worthy of God. Fatherhood and motherhood can still be learned from a brother or sister without physical children. Paul is single, but he has lots of children because of God's grace, working through his undivided devotion to the Lord. His business, his, his business isn't orchestrating everything in life to meet Mr. or Mrs. Wright. His chief business is Christ. That's where he finds his meaning and his significance in life. Truth number four, singleness has many challenges. Singleness has many challenges. The last three truths are glorious to embrace. 
But I know, I, I mean, I've been in conversation with single people, single brothers and sisters. These are, these are hard to live out. Especially when, when facing challenges within your own heart and, and challenges without from the church and the broader culture. So I, w- I want to mention a few challenges that some singles face, though not all, and, and hopefully point a way forward as, as we walk together as a church and, and seek to understand and serve one another. Brothers and sisters who are single sometimes face the challenge of loneliness. Challenge of loneliness. Genesis chapter 2, verse 18 says, It's not good for man to be alone. God created us to be relational beings, as he is a relational being. In singleness, there are natural, created desires for relationship that often go unmet. And and it's appropriate for us to recognize that challenge as a real one and, and pray for our brothers and sisters who are single. At the same time, we have to say that married people experience loneliness as well. Perhaps their spouse is gone a lot. Perhaps their spouse is around but doesn't want anything to do with the relationship. Perhaps one spouse is chronically ill and not able to do much with the other. Whatever factors are involved, it's possible to be married and lonely Two, on, on this side of the fall, we have to say that marriage is not the ultimate solution for loneliness. The real solution lies elsewhere in something deeper and longer lasting. The real solution is found in union with Christ and his people. You see, Paul knew what it was like to be lonely. E- even worse, he knew what it was like to be abandoned by others. We see some examples of that in 2 Timothy chapter 4, but, but Paul took courage in that the Lord still stood by him. 2 Timothy chapter 4 verse 17 says, But the Lord stood by me, and he strengthened me, so that through me the message might be fully proclaimed, and all the Gentiles might hear it. It's often the case that loneliness can lead to self-pity. And where self-pity rules the day, we become blind to the opportunities to love others that God is setting before us. What would you be thinking about sitting in prison for the gospel as a single person? Can't you imagine at least some of the thoughts of loneliness? Can't you imagine at least some of those thoughts, your dreams of getting married one day are being dashed to pieces as you're trapped? You're not going to have any children sitting in here in this jail cell. But it says here that Christ stood by Paul, not only as his true companion but to help Paul fulfill his calling to make the gospel known to the Gentiles. And in the, in the, in the book of Acts, you see him doing that. I mean, he's, he's in prison, ministering to his prison mates. Christ will be the same for us. He is the truest companion. 
He knows us more intimately than any husband or wife ever could. He never leaves us or forsakes us. He is always there, even in the darkest and loneliest of deserts. Being united to Christ also means that God unites us to each other as a church. Both singles and married people find companionship in Christ together. Ephesians 2.19 says that you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God. We're family in the truest sense. That means we must treat each other like family. We must reach out and come alongside each other and, and, and show hospitality. We are the ones that make Jesus' love that we read about in Scripture tangible to one another. We, we need to open our homes. Married people need to be, invite singles over. And singles need to invite married people over. Some of that has already happened. happening. Keep it going. We should work toward building spiritual friendships in Christ with different kinds of people and not just the people who are like us. Not just the people who are, quote-unquote, in our life stage. Let's just, can we delete life stage from the vocabulary of the church, please? We were made and we were saved for this. When those kinds of relationships are happening, the world looks in at the church and goes, why is that happening? And we say, Jesus unites us. That doesn't mean the challenge of loneliness won't return, but it does mean that Christ has made provision for it in giving us himself and in giving us one another. Singles also face the challenge of being treated like second best. They face the challenge of being treated like second best. People often say insensitive things like, why aren't you married yet? Or, hey, I bet you'd really be happy if I hooked you up with so-and-so. As if happiness is dependent on marriage. Tim Keller identifies more of these dumb statements. In his book, The Meaning of Marriage, he says, As soon as you're satisfied with God alone, he'll bring someone special into your life. As though God's blessings are, are ever earned by our contentment. Or then there's this one. You're just being too picky. As though God is frustrated by our fickle whims and needs broader parameters in which to work. Or this one. As a single, you can commit yourself wholeheartedly to the Lord's work. Implication, married people are exempt. As though God requires emotional martyrs to do his work, of which marriage must be no part. Or this one. Before you can marry someone wonderful, the Lord has to make you someone wonderful. As though God grants marriage as a second blessing to the satisfactorily sanctified. He says, beneath these statements is the premise that single life is a state of deprivation for people who are not yet fully formed enough for marriage. 
Church, we must remember where we've been today in the scriptures. That singleness is not second best to marriage. They're both gifts from God, and singleness is even woven into the fabric of the Bible's storyline. It has a very positive place in the kingdom. We also need to be quick to listen, as James says, to our single brothers and sisters when they're hurting and lonely and feeling like second best. We are one body in Christ, and how dare one member say to the other, I have no need of you. What would change if if a single person wrote you a note like this? I don't feel like I fit in at church. This is much better than it was, but it still bothers me. I'm not sure how I'm supposed to get to know the moms and the families. I can't do play dates. I feel weird inviting families over. I assume they won't want to come, and what would I do with all the kids? Even the other day, I was conflicted about the family outings and playdates group. I want to know when stuff like that is going on, but will people think I'm weird if I join the group? Would they want me? That's a real note. We need to listen when singles speak to us like this. It may not be that we're intentionally avoiding others, but simply not thinking of them carefully enough or at all. Let's work as a church toward changing this and being mindful of one another. As one of the pastors here, I'm so thankful for the singles that we do have. I'm thankful for your presence and your various skills And your friendship, my own family, and this whole church is healthier and stronger because of your commitment and contributions. Last night we were having our devotions and we were reading for 1 Corinthians 7 and and Rachel asked the kids, do you all know any single people in our congregation who are serving the Lord with undivided devotion to Christ? And the kids just start naming people off. Miss Sylvia, Jansen. Just, and they just keep going as, as people who, have, who they've seen live this life. Singles also face the challenge of discontentment. Discontentment. Again, that, that's not unique to, to singles, but it's, but, it's, but it's there for some. Many of you really want to get married, and I want to say that is a good desire because marriage is a good gift from the Lord. But I just, I want to qualify and say that there's a way to be discontent with singleness while remaining content in the Savior. And that's really the struggle, isn't it? How do I do both? I want to get married, but Christ is all. You see, it is possible to so want to be married and to so want that kind of intimacy now that that you'll do just about anything to have it. And in that case, marriage becomes an idol. And that idol will not lead to joy but to destruction and, and unhealthy relationships and maybe even bitterness towards the Lord. It's not wrong to want what is good. 
problem comes when we want something so much that it replaces God and distracts us from doing what pleases Him. We have to learn with Paul that in whatever situation I am to be content. It's Christ who strengthens us, Philippians 4. And I know that's coming two singles out of the mouth of a married man. Contentment comes with knowing Christ and cherishing all that he is for you. Paul knew this as a single man, though. And he writes it to us as a church. And church, family, we must come alongside our brothers and sisters when they struggle in this way and pray for them and affirm their good desires and and not heap false guilt upon them for wanting marriage, for wanting to be married. And at the same time, we can remind them again and again of God's unwavering love being demonstrated in the cross. God shows his love for us not in that he gives us a husband or a wife or children or a house or anything else in this life. God shows his love for us in this, in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Period. And that love never increases or decreases for his elect. He is constant and sufficient. Even if you happen to get married one day, you won't have any more of Christ than what you have of him right now. And we can find rest there and comfort. Those are three challenges. I know that's not all the challenges that you brothers and sisters face, but but I hope it starts moving us forward as a as a church to loving and serving together more faithfully. Let's close with one more truth. Truth number five, singleness, like marriage, will be replaced. Singleness, like marriage, will be replaced by something far more glorious. A few weeks ago, we saw that marriage isn't forever. It, too, is only a season. Some people talk about a season of singleness. Let's delete that from our vocabulary as well. Marriage is a season. We're all going to die. And we won't be given in marriage in the age to come, Jesus says in Luke 20. All earthly marriages will be replaced with an infinitely greater marriage union with Christ. For those who are in Christ. But that future marriage union of all Christ's people with Christ himself means that nobody is single in the age to come. Whether we get married in Christ now or we remain single in Christ now, the true bridegroom is returning for all of us to marry all of us. And on that glorious day, Revelation 21 verse 4 says this, God will wipe away every tear from their eyes and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things 
have passed away. And I can't help but include in that the tears and the pain that some of you experience in being single when you want to be married. Or single and remembering that dear one that you were married to. None of us know why God chooses to work the way he does in giving marriage to some and not to others or making marriage last this long for some and not for others. But we're all certain of this. However difficult or painful our married or single years have been, they will be replaced by a glorious union to Christ beyond our wildest dreams. And he is coming for us, brothers and sisters. Let's pray together.